Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello. Hey, Robert. How are you doing? Doing all right. How are you? I am good. Hey, Adam. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Doing well. Hey, Robert P. Robert. (laughs) Two Roberts. (laughs) Yes, we've got multiple Roberts this evening. Guys, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good to see you. Just to warn you, I think there's something um, over your shoulder there that's that's looking pretty threatening. (laughs) Well, <laughs> <laughs> is uh, Dan joining us? Or? Uh, Dan was originally scheduled to join us, but um, when he realized it was at 4 p.m., just the yeah, time to, he's in, he's, he's in New yeah. Zealand right now. Oh, oh, <laughs> nice for him. There so it's <laughs> it's very, very early Monday morning right now. Yeah, there you go. Um, trip but, back, made it back okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we are expecting a few other folks, but I guess they'll pop in or they won't. Um, so let me ask, is this the regular, like the usual suspects mm-hmm. for the most part? These are some of the, the frequently seen faces. Yeah, cool. Adam, for sure. I mean, before I started, uh, I would listen and hear Adam. So, yeah, uh, I recognize both of your voices from episodes of the podcast. You know, pleased to meet you, Robert. Yeah, you as well. Yeah, Yeah, welcome. Yeah, in this episode, we don't have a proper guest to do our recording with later. So assuming it's okay with everybody here, let me know it's not. We're going to go ahead and release this patron book club to the mainstream. It's okay with me. Cool. Sure. Good. All right, so I guess we can start with which edition of the book we're working with. Um, let's start with our, our newest member, uh, Robert P. What what's sure. your, what are you working with? This is a, oh, let's see if we can do this. Uh, it's some kind of random recent tour version. Mm. Um, it's, uh, let's see, Tom Doherty Associates tour with a cover by Vance Kovac. Sorry for my... Zoom background, but there you go. You can see that with some illustrations inside, which uh, is kind of interesting and I find superfluous, really. There you go. I see it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, <laughs> I do the same thing so, all the time. Some see, I have a background. Questionable illustrations. <laughs> yeah. Looks like we have Gabriel joining us. Nice. Yeah. Once, once he, he could probably hear us, but can we cannot see him or hear him? Yeah. Yeah, he's currently yeah. camera off and mic off, so yeah, yeah. hopefully he'll be um, joining us by video and audio soon. But until then, Robert C., which edition are you working with? Okay, older. It's a DAW. I think it's inside. It said, yeah. It said I've got the, the fifth, same. Fifth printing. Oh, oh, yeah, same image. I don't know who did this. Uh, I forgot who did the picture, but it's the Battle Beast, I think. So Or Battle Cat, something like that. Uh, the war- the- Battle Jaguars of Asia Communista. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, I guess I should mention, I uh, Aladon, Aladan is in there and behind him. And I decided that his face looks very much like a young 
Michael Moorcock, or at least I if, as I'm de-aging the current Michael Moorcock in my mind's eye, I'm putting him into that that <laughs> younger version. So now granted, when we interviewed Michael Moorcock, he had a shirt on the whole time, but I'm guessing he's less hairy. <laughs> yeah. He's illustrated in this in this in this picture. Yeah. Probably. <clears throat> Um, yeah, so I, um, I've got the same edition. Um, Adam held up the same edition. We have various printings, but it's it's the same the same beastie. How about you, Hoy? Uh, I have the. Hold on, I've got the same background issues. The Mayflower. Oh, yeah. You got the cool British one. Yeah, with the um, the Bob Haberfield cover, and this is another one from my friend James's collection. Um, so I have a bunch of versions of this, but this is the one I have to pull out because it was very convenient to use in New York. Um, so, uh, and I'm glad I read it. It's got that sort of semi-photo, semi-painted cover. It's very cool. Nice. Yeah. And Gabriel, welcome to the patron book club. Thank you. Yes. Sorry. I'm uh, slightly late. The, well, that is all right. Problems. Um, I have the same edition as Hoy, so the Bob Hagerfield one. Um, yeah, with the typically sort of slightly surrealistic color cover on it. Mm-hmm. Nice. By the and way, the doll one is Richard Clifton Day, according to ISFDB. He did the cover. Perfect. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for that, Hoy. And Gabriel, we're going to be releasing this episode to the mainstream as our episode, this recording as our episode. So just want to make sure that's okay with you? Uh, Yep, yep, no problem. Sweet, cool. Um, All right, so we've talked about which edition of the book we're reading. Let's see if we've got any Hygaxian nominations. Does anybody have anything they would like to... Uh, nominate for our Hygaxian word of the day. I've I've got one. It's it's not terrific, but it's uh, constitution. Okay. The physical makeup of the individual, especially with respect to health, strength, and appearance of body. And toward the end, uh, says, "How is Dvarek?" Hawkmoon asked. Stronger, Bo Gentle said. He has an excellent constitution, says he would like to get up to eat tonight. I said he might. So we all know what constitution means. Uh, (laughs) I found this was a really tough one for for interesting words. Um, But I found one that I think is a made-up word, enmetaled, as in clad in metal, I guess. Um, And uh, it's in... Book two, chapter five. Uh, let me find the passage, the slaughter in the hall. Uh, oh, by the rune staff, murmured Hawkmoon thickly, the power in me. Then he sprang forward, great battle blade howling through the air to snap the enmetaled neck of the leading warrior. So, again, I don't think it's a word, real word, but it's a more cocky word, I guess, as well as a Hagaxian word. There you go. Okay. That's a good one. I have uh, something I'm not very proud of, but and I think it may have been mentioned before. I don't know if it's been chosen, but uh, sardonic, mm-hmm. disdainful, cynically mocking. It was used a few times throughout the book uh, to describe Daverick. Daverick, so. That's, That's a very more cocky word because you frequently hear that or you, you picture that along with uh, like 
Ariok or the various forms of the Chaos Gods as being very mm-hmm. sardonic. So I think that's a good one. Nice. Yeah. Gabriel, do you have a word to nominate? Uh, not really, no. I couldn't find. I mean, I think all, I suppose, Ornithopter, but I'm pretty sure that's come up in uh, previous previous um, books in the series. As, as other people have said, it's not a sort of particularly good source for kind of rather arcane language. Mm-hmm. Building on what Adam was saying about constitution, it just made me realize I don't know the answer to this. Do the the six attributes as we know them, the D and D six attributes, did that start with D and D, or did that come out of war games as well? Because I know other ideas like hit points and armor class came out of war games preceding D&D, but I don't know if those six stats do either or if that's a D&D creation. Does anybody know? I do not. Seems like uh, seems like something that we should know. But, <laughs> but Yeah, <laughs> it seems like the kind of thing that I would already have in my in my memory bank. But yeah. It does strike me. I mean, the thing is that if war war games are mostly done on a sort of you you know at least a unit basis, so I can't think why you'd have um, individual stats. But yeah, that mm-hmm. makes sense why they have armor class and hit points. I get that for for units, but yeah, I'm guessing this well, is I mean, a D and D creation. Yeah, I could see it because it is this transition from like the kind of unit based or squad based war game perspective to like the individual personality perspective mm-hmm. yeah and certainly a stat like charisma would not have been i don't imagine would have been something they would have used for an army mm. uh, <laughs> but uh yeah hoy do you have any nominations no i think um the thing i think i've sort of noted with moorcock is that he uh you would think given his uh, education and his love of sort of um arcane texts would have a lot more uh, Hygaxian words, but he, of, out of all the sort of appendix end writers, I thought tended to write very clean prose that kind of dropped that. I mean, Robert E. Howard used more Hygaxian words than, than Moorcock did in my sort of conscious memory in any case. So that's that's something I've always noted about Moorcock. Yeah. Know, other than the words he actually makes up, you know. I also wonder if on some level that's also how the way in which like Elric is like the anti Conan, like very much inspired by Conan, but very also intentionally kind of flipping it, flip it, flipping it over. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if his, maybe he's made a choice to have more approachable language where um, the weird tales authors were very much flexing their the Thoris muscles. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, for sure that Moorcock, the impression I always got was that he was not insecure in his level of education. And so he didn't feel like the need to flex that as much as some of the the appendix and authors or Gary Gygax might have. Yeah. Um, and also, I think, as I recall, these books were written in that period when Moorcock was like, you know, writing these like over the course of a weekend with a fifth of whiskey. You know, by his I, I thought it was more like an eight ball of speed. Yeah, maybe both. <laughs> like it was yeah, just yeah, to keep him on an even keel. So, um, so that, you know, writing with sort of a real velocity and not not worrying about, you know, um, and getting the mood and the impression across, but not worrying about the absolute perfection of prose, you know, in a way that some of the other authors might, might yeah. have, like a Lovecraft might have, you know. Is this anybody's, um, has anybody here read this book prior to reading it for this project? Uh, I yeah. did a long time ago, like in at the end of high school, but I didn't remember anything about it. Okay, so, yeah, similar 
when I was like 13 or 14, maybe like just in that kind of Moorcock and, and like uh Lovecraft discovery phase. Really? And Robert C. and Adam did not. I didn't, I didn't read it. Gabriel, did you? Several times. Yeah. Several times. Okay. So you're the one here who's the most familiar with this then. Um, so I guess um, maybe I'll start with the newbies first. So um, Robert C., what did you think of the Mad God's Amulet? Uh, I quite enjoyed it. I, I think it was easier for me than the first uh, volume of, of this series because there was all the world building was kind of done previously in the previous book. And I think for I enjoyed the world building, but uh, this one was just uh forward plot you know bam 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 we're going from one thing to another and he doesn't need to uh sort of explain or illustrate what the dark empire is or anything he we just know what that is by now um really made me feel like i was reading an old style pulp novel even though this was probably written 40 years later and uh so yeah lots of fun how about you adam yeah I had a similar reaction. I thought it was fun. I thought the I thought the best parts were like the beginning when they're in the uh, the uh, Middle Eastern city, um, and it's like fast paced, you know, short chapters, which is kind of a relief after some of the ones we've tackled. <laughs> um, it's got some cool super science in it, which I always enjoy, and uh, I like the uh, the whole thing about making. Uh, Grand Breton, like the big bad guys, I thought was kind of interesting, given that that's Michael Moorcock's home country. It's a little, a little subversive. So I, I thought it had a lot going for it, you know. But mostly, I agree with what the what, what Robert was saying is that it was like quick and and uh, and fun to read. As the other first timer with the Mad God's Amulet, I would like to echo what Robert and Adam are saying. I, I enjoyed reading it. I had a really good time reading it. The pacing is um, fantastic. Um, really just clips right along. We've got fun characters, fun world world building. It feels like it's 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 just a it's a good Michael Moorcock Eternal Champion book that I'm I really enjoyed reading, and I'm I'm glad I did. Um, Robert and Hoy, as two people who read this once before, but quite a ways back, what was it like for you to come back to these? Why don't you take that, Robert? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think I agree with what all of you guys have said so far. Like, it's a romp, right? Which a lot of these Moorcock Eternal Champion books are. There's so much action. And so, like, some of the necessary, like, kind of expository stuff kind of gets weirdly shoehorned in like when the word jet and gold comes in and like blathers for a page about like some backstory to help us get to the next you know fight scene or like exciting sequence um but but yeah really approachable really fun um uh good pacing yeah and i don't you know i have like kind of a time skewed or time twisted sense of or memory of a lot of these books um like a lot of these early these Moorcock books and I, it didn't, and it matched up though. Like it was kind of like, I was like, yeah, I guess that's what I remember. Um, yeah, I really re enjoyed rereading this again. I don't remember. I remember like the broad arc of the Hawkmoon story, but I didn't remember anything specific about this novel. Um, 
I did really pretty much uh, agree with everything that was said. A, a few things I really liked were, um, uh, I guess, oddly, because we're now we're thinking about that part of the world, like specifically the fact that they were sailing to Ukraine, right, and landed at Kerch, mm-hmm. and, and we're traveling across some of these areas that are now so much in our consciousness. Um, so that was very interesting. Um, and I think clearly uh, Moorcock, I mean, he would had a living memory of World War II, World War I would have been in historical memory. Uh, he clearly knows a lot, too, about the 30 years of war, because he's talking about this devastation, this continent-wide devastation that um, he's very effective talking about, like, you know, the the, the burned-over landscapes and, the, you know, the sort of locust-like hordes of the, um, you know, Grand Bretagne. And I liked how he kept on expanding the different and making very just quick allusions to, like, the character of the different sort of uh, massed orders, how they are, like, you know, the, the moles or, like, the engineers and, you know, and all these different orders have their sort of different characteristics. So it seems almost kind of funny that William de Verk, who is such a, apparently such a, a dandy and is in the boar, the crudest of the the, the orders, right? <laughs> you know, but then they have these little funny throwaways about how he always, like, pretends like he's very dainty, but then he eats, like, more meat than anybody else when he eats, like, like an entire Brazilian buffet's worth of meat every time it's presented to him. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is hilarious. And he's probably my favorite thing about this whole book in particular, because Moorcock, nobody writes like a badass dandy like Moorcock does, you know? So, <laughs> so that was a, a ton of fun. So I'm glad, I'm definitely glad I reread this. And I think that he, he has these very serious dark moments that he just sort of, but he leaves it. It's not, it's not grim dark that, you know, comes along 30 years later, you know? So. And Gabriel I'll- is somebody who has returned to this um, book again and again. Tell us about your experiences returning to it this time. Um, well, just to reiterate what everyone else has said, it is incredibly pacey. It covers well, quite a sort of, certainly quite a wide geographical range and then quite a, I suppose, quite a long span of time as well. But you don't really, you know, in a, if, it, if this was a sort of Wheel of Time book, then you'd have every sort of stone they tripped over on the kind of road to the Crimea, back to the Camargue, um, described in excruciating detail. But as it is, he tells you the bits that you need to know. He misses out the bits that you don't need to know. He has a fight every couple of pages. And there's something to... There's something to hold your attention, whether it is a fight, whether it's a sort of description of the landscape a bit of world building, some sort of something fantastic, but it's, you know, he, he, he doesn't, he doesn't mess about at all, which makes it, uh, yeah, which mean makes it cool. Make is the reason why he's kind of one of the best authors right. that writes this sort of stuff. And I do want to say that each fight scene, he made it distinct to right. Each action sequence, because the, the stakes and the circumstances are becoming increasingly distinct. Like I love the whole bit on the smiling lady you know, with all the, the laughing cannibals. And then later on, when they're fighting on the chariot, each time it's different, right? So I think that was a lot of, you know, it takes a, a, a real um, active imagination to keep on thinking, like, how can I top myself, you know? So uh, what other uh, maybe interesting uh, things came up for the, the first time or the long time, you know, first time re- readers on this uh, yeah, if yeah. anybody has any favorite any favorite portions of the book. Yeah. Mm. I I remember thinking 
when we reached the uh, Hall of the Mad God, and maybe, and you mentioned the uh, pirate ship too, not as much in the pirate ship, but uh, the slaughter in the hall, that's the name of one of the chapters. And by the time we reached that point, I was like, whoa, man, this is like pretty gory. And I, it seemed like this was a lot more hyper-violent and, uh, and actually described like the, uh, almost the the way that uh, I'm now trying to describe my character and some of my role playing games uh, when like well how do you kill them you know that's the <laughs> the dungeon master asks you and so you get into like this is how I did it and this is what happens to the body afterwards and there's a bunch of that stuff and I was a little bit thrilled and a little bit grossed out so uh, <laughs> there's more than one scene like that in the book. I think I'm a little bit jaded after Salambo in terms of gore. So, <laughs> how about you, Adam? Anything that you uh, really jumped out at you as a as a favorite bit? I like at the at the very end when uh, when Hawkmoon foils Baron M- Meliadus or whatever, and he moves the city with his like super science gizmo, puts it in another dimension. Baron Meliadus is just like so stereotypical, like. I'll get you yet, Hawkmoon, you know? <laughs> He's just like foiled again, drag, you know? He's totally snidely whiplash, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was pretty fun. I thought that was pretty cheesy. It was pretty cool, though. <laughs> yeah, I was getting a lot of He-Man Skeletor antics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like at least some of the grand... I've been watching some of the Corman uh, Poe movies in the last, you know, because it's the time of year. And I feel like, for sure, you could do, like, cast uh, a bunch of the Grand Britain warlords as like Corman, like part of Corman's regular stock company could play them, you know? <laughs> and certainly Vincent Price could play like, a, if a younger Vincent Price could play William Deverick and he'd be perfect, you know? Mm-hmm. Our, our newest Robert, do you have a favorite part of the book? Uh, I, I like several parts. Like, it's just all of this could just be like straight line scenarios you know per like the pirate ship stuff the the war jaguars the, but i think um with the kind of stuff that i've been into interested like in in gaming and role play lately um the hiding in the grand britannian camp and the chase through there i thought was exciting and kind of fun and there's some intrigue and then of course you had to work with his like throwaway lines like make way for you know whatever is and then he's like yeah, I'm bored with the lie. I'm gonna make up a different lie to yell to people. Like that. I just <laughs> yeah. I loved I loved all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I think he also had that really great line when he does get blasted by the firelands. I can't quote it off the top of my head, but it's like, you know, it's something to the effect of like I've ha- I've made a huge mistake, you know. <laughs> 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 Was there anything about the book that anybody struggled with or didn't care for? Um, I would like to see Yiselda have a little bit more agency once she was freed from uh, the Mad God's, uh, you know, thrall, you know, and, and become a more active participant in their whole quest across the continent. But that... Yeah, we're seeing the, the the cliche of the, oh, my 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 woman has been stolen. I guess I shall chase my woman. Um, we're seeing a lot of like that very kind of Barosian um um, plot device is happening here as well. But I, I did like when I, I did like the little twist we had on it though, where she's like hypnotized into attacking him 
And like, that's, that's not something that I had seen previously with that, with that particular kind of tired trope before though. So that was, that aspect of it was fun. Right. And that these hypnotized women were like the most bloodthirsty, violent warriors and, and like had effectively like committed genocide on this whole region of Ukraine. Right. Yeah, the, the the characterization of the the Mad God's beautiful female army, like that's <laughs> it's weird. Um, and I love that I guess, they just find him sitting uh, in the cage. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say, I guess that I, I I guessed that the warrior and Jet and Black was going to return at some point, and I. I pretty much figured, oh, he'll have the, you know, the Deus Ex Machina with him, and that's what happened. So I was, I kept anticipating that as I read it, but that doesn't mean that I didn't enjoy reading it along the way. It's just I was like, well, this is a, you know, the the uh, experienced reader part of my brain was like, this is obviously what's going to happen. Um, and then I, I guess I was gratified when that that is what happened. So. Maybe that's a good thing after all. Yeah, sometimes there's just a a, a a complete pleasure in going with the expectations and not subverting them in any way. <laughs> like, you know, it's just a question of how you get there and not when, you know, if you'll get there. Yeah, I mean, for, for this era of Michael Moorcock stuff, I'm like pretty forgiving of a lot of, you know, kind of warts, a lot of rough edges because I, you know, it's not as bad as some writers from the similar or earlier era, which you guys have talked about in, you know, over and over on podcasts. Yeah. And I think Moorcock, um, his, his real sort of feminist era was about four or five years down the line. I think when he did like Gloriana and a couple other books at that point. And I mean, he was always progressive for his era, but when he really was really uh, embraced it wholeheartedly. It was another four or five years down the line, I think. Um, but so I think he's sort of getting there with some of the characters being able to do interesting things, but you know, the, the women characters, but not quite there. And and maybe he's also writing to um, a commercial concerns. He, he was still a commercial writer, but above, you know, you know, at least at this point above all, you know, so. Gabriel, I'm curious as a, as a big reader of Moorcock in general, is how how does this book stand in kind of your list of favorite Moorcocks? Is this near the top? Is this near the bottom? Is it somewhere in the middle? Um, that's a good question. Um, I it's probably not. So I say yeah, somewhere in the middle, really. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing that did strike me is there were a couple of scenes that did seem very reminiscent of things that were in some of the Elric stories, um, such as the, uh, I kind of half remembered the, um, there's a, in one of the Elric stories, there's something where a load of um, kind of warrior women are ported through to another direction from another dimension to attack a caravan and then Elric summons some sort of bestial people to kill them. And I kind of got confused between that and the scene in the scene with the kind of warrior woman in uh, the Crimea. And it also felt that when um, 
Hawkmoon puts on the um, Mad God's amulet and um, essentially turns into a kind of battle monster, then that was very kind of Elric-y in itself, you know, like Elric drawing Stormbringer. Um, yeah, I recall that scene. It was like there were uh, women, there were naked women with cannibal teeth. There was a Jeff G illustration or something like that in uh, Deities and Demigods, that women warrior race or this, uh, in yeah, in the Mel Oh, the Illinois. Yeah, Illinois. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, and then yeah, that okay. Yes, I remember now. And then yeah, Elric calls the Grawlock. They're like, um, they're bestial, you know, historical foes to fight them off. Yeah, that's it. So it's yeah, it's a very good. It's um, it is very good. It doesn't completely sort of stand out in the way that other things do. So. Makes sense. And again, I think that he, I mean, I think he loves all his creation, but clearly Elric is number one, right? And and it seemed to me, I remember reading again that Hawkmoon was a thing like, okay, you know, I, I can work with these themes and versions of uh, variations on a the theme, but this is one I'm just doing to, you know, get it out there, have some content, as we would say now, in the pipeline and, you know, keep moving, right? Uh, I mean, he's got a lot, Hawkmoon has a lot less sort of I suppose personalities and some of the other eternal champions. It almost feels like he's there because the main characters needed, just so Morcock um, can do all this world building and kind of plot building and whatever. It it didn't it didn't have it could have been more or less anyone in that situation. I don't know. Yeah. Um, for those of you who are, we're all nodding in agreement. <laughs> I can see that, and I yeah. think that all the supporting characters are terrific, right? I mean, Oladon is and Count Brass. That he he relishes a much more uh, attention and whimsy on his supporting characters. Uh, in the first book, it kind of makes sense because Hawkmoon is sort of uh, both PTSD, as I recall, and sort of under the thrall of the of the Blackstone, and and you could sort of say maybe that he's still coming out of it, but I would agree that out of the various incarnations of the Eternal Champion, he does seem to have uh, a much less distinct personality than Elric or Corum, um, you know, than, you know, certainly those two, or Rekir even. Yeah, he's a he's a flat-out good guy, you know, as opposed to, like, Elric or, or any of them. He's He's very noble, very brave, always does the right thing, you know? So that yeah, that's a good point. A little less, he's very a little less interesting. Note. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly, Adam. He's 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 less interesting in that. With that respect, he is very yeah. So I hadn't really considered that before. He's he's very much just the good guy. Right. Which maybe leads me to believe that maybe Moorcock is really he really he understands the need for the cosmic balance, but he really does favor chaos over law because. <laughs> you know. Because uh, it's pretty clear that Hawkmoon is an incarnation of law and not of chaos. So, <laughs> or maybe it's just because he's German and therefore less interesting. <laughs> mm. But I mean, for again, for this book, I think William Deverick steals every scene he's in. So that's that's you know. Yeah, I mean, I was just gonna say if that's maybe it's okay. Hawkmoon is is sort of a blank slate because it gives. Tverick and and a few others so much room to play off of him. He's like the straight man, and the rest of them are the, are hitting the 
the the jokes and the high points. So, yep. So looking, was even, sorry, go ahead, Jeff. I was just going to say, looking at this from a gaming perspective, I was wondering if anybody had any thoughts about um, Mad God's Amulet from that perspective, because also this is this is one of the books that's specifically cited by Gary Gygax. He says the first three Hawkmoon books. So any thoughts about why this is a specifically cited text? Um, well, I'll just to continue about Averic, that's um, I was going to cite him as a great example of an NPC uh, type that you could have show up in the sense of how he keeps switching sides. You know, I, I believe he shows up first as an antagonist and then uh, he becomes sympathetic and then he starts uh, pulling along with them and helping them. And then he appears to betray them or does betray them and then he switches back again so he's just sort of uh he would be a great uh way for a gm to just <laughs> mess with his players you know and and make things happen you know and, and his personality is great too but i like that um lever that he ser he serves in the story i thought it worked really well because i was worried you know, the whole time he was being friendly and they said, OK, we'll we'll let you be our pal and and join the team and all this. I was like, no, no, <laughs> don't do it. Don't trust this guy. So uh, it really worked for me. Adam, do you have any thoughts? Um, as far as like what in this uh, is what why it's listed in the Appendix N? Yeah, why do you think that this is a this is a book that was specifically cited for us to check out for our gaming inspiration? Um, well, I I, I guess I, I'm not quite sure where you're going with the question, but I, I think some of the stuff that's good for gaming in here is like the uh, the orders, obviously, you know, uh, the, with the the way and the weird way that they identify with their animal, you know, and how they don't even want to take their masks off, you know, after a while. Uh, and the see, oh, and oh, and the, we've mentioned this before in the previous book, the secret languages that they have mm -hmm. is very uh, D and D, right? You know, it's like thieves can't or whatever. Uh, right. So that's that's like a cool role playing aspect, I think. Right. Yeah, to build on that, I think because a lot of people always said like uh, alignment languages are ridiculous and stupid, don't make any sense at all. Uh, but I think I've heard Tim Cast des describe alignment languages as not unlike how they describe the various languages of the ver uh, of the animal orders. Um, it's a, basically a, a recognition sign that you can use, right? So that everyone recognizes, oh yeah, well, you're what side you're on. Um, and so I thought, yeah, that all works very well. How about how about you, Gabriel? Do you have any uh, thoughts on the uh, gaming inspiration or utility of, of anything that came out of this book? Um, hmm. I mean, plus, suppose you've got the sort of several different types of in, you've got a kind of sea battle. You've got sort of fairly major land battles at the end of the book as well. 
So there is a kind of, again, there's that routine from the wargaming thing, because, you know, if, if you could possibly use something like chain mail to um, emulate the attack on the Camargue or something like that, and then you go right down to the individual level. But whether that was sort of in um, Gygax's mind when he put it in, probably not. Other than that, I mean, there's loads of stuff that you can pinch pinch from it. But um, directly going into sort of D&D, nothing, nothing other than what I've mentioned. All right. And I think um, it'll be fun to get into what we want to steal from this, too. But I'm curious, Robert P., do you have any theories about why this might be a book that was specifically cited? Yeah, I mean, w- once you ask the question in, in thinking about it, what occurs to me is it's kind of a um, uh, a classic post-apocalyptic world building exercise, right? Tragic Millennium Europe. And maybe like that is as good a reason as any to include it as like suggested reading. Mm-hmm. For gaming. I like right. that because I because I, I, I feel like this book in general is a great example of just if 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 you were it's 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 the late 70s and you want to give people an idea of what Dungeons and Dragons is going to look like. I think this is a great example. You've got like you, you've, you've got groups of you've got people who have teamed up together to travel throughout this big, crazy world. And you're hitting these various plot points and you're encountering monsters along the way. And I know that Gygax was much more into the kind of science fantasy than the Tolkien stuff. So I also think this is a great book to read if you kind of want to get your head around what it might look like to incorporate some some um, ancient technology or some you know wild high tech stuff into your kind of D and D setting. I think this is a great way of kind of wrapping your brain around that and introducing somebody to what that might look like. Um, Hoy, did you have anything else you wanted to say about that? No, I think you're uh, right with that. I think Gygax very much uh, was into, as you say, this mix of super science. It's actually also, I mean, very specifically, even World of Greyhawk is implied to be a post-apocalyptic setting, right? In a lot of ways, right? There's the, whatever, the reign of clear fire or something like that that created the the, the desert in the West in the World of Greyhawk. Um, there was also sort of even alluded to and not really, um, I know it wasn't a guy gaxing class, but um, didn't Dave, I think Dave Arneson had a sort of adventuring um, merchant class and that caravan that um uh hawk, hawk moon and that first meet up with i think that would be a great party i guess you could do that like ultraviolet grasslands or something like that because they they said that these these caravan are, are no strangers to battle right they all have these uh uh scimitars with no sheaths and you know i really like the imagery of them with these like oiled beards and and, and you know looking very you know uh exotic and adventurous uh so something that's distinctly it's irrecognizable but not uh renfair european right i think that's always a lot of fun when when you have uh you can play with those kind of things like that instead uh, i know that's the risk of uh exoticization but as long as we go into that with our eyes open i think there's room for that in our our role playing right mm-hmm. yeah and then looking at things we might want to steal from this um for me i really 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 loved how the wraiths were um creatures who had been phased over into a different into a different dimension and you know i'm i'm getting ready to start a vaults of varn campaign which is a science fantasy rpg and um 
in thinking about the ways that you can reskin um, kind of classic D&D adventures or adventures that are written for um, kind of a more medieval style RPG, I think it, it really got me excited about different ways that we can go about reskinning things. So like the idea of a wraith. You know, like if you want to do it in a science fiction world, you know, in, in traditional RPGs, like, oh, it's undead, they're ghosts. That's why they're ethereal. And it just it, it gave me a, a really fun way of maybe potentially approaching um, um, kind of traditional classic monsters that are undead and ethereal, but making them more kind of connected to science. So that's definitely something I'd like to steal from it. But I'd love, love to hear from uh, the rest of you things you would like to steal from this. Um, I love the uh, war jaguars. That they're both useful but incredibly dangerous. <laughs> you know, right? It's like, well, all right, <laughs> you know, or yeah, maybe we have something to control them, but you know, it might wear off, or you know, that person has to stay awake indefinitely, and so they're they're constantly fatigued because they have to control the war jaguars, right? <laughs> and then just thinking about like, okay, well, they decide they have to go up this mountain, they can't take the war jaguars, so now this entire countryside has these six or four or six war jaguars, just like <laughs> that are immortal. <laughs> It's wandering around and just eating things. <laughs> like, oh well, <laughs> you know, lesser of lesser of two evils, right? <laughs> How about you, Robert P? Uh I so I have to I have to admit, I have to confess that um a lot of my gaming I mean, I started with D D like most people did, right? When they're when they're kids, but then right away actually went over to the RuneQuest and Stormringer side. And so with those early editions of Stormbringer, and then there was a Hawkmoon, which was kind of a Stormbringer reskin from Chaosium um, around that same like early 80s era. Like this is like ground that I have trod um, in, in terms of like more kind of pulling in the tragic millennium Europe stuff into a Stormbringer setting. Um, but it's but everything, but so apart, I mean, so that's kind of where my head is, but but I actually like the the pirates the being captured by the enemy army and and escaping somehow the war jaguars the um the interdimensional shift machina you know like all of those things are are stuff that i would or have like stolen from from this love it how about you robert c so yeah, that, that's pretty much what I was going to say, Robert. Is just that each each one of these chapters feels like a scenario that you might uh, try to cook up yourself uh, for your players. Um, I come back to uh, that uh, chamber where they find the mad god hanging in a cage, and uh, that's just that's, that's a really wild visual that they they have to break into the cage, and then he's he's attacking them and. And then Yuzelda gets into the mix too. So it's just a lot of uh great little setups that he has. And um and also very beginning of the of the program that we're on, uh, Adam mentioned the super science and and Jeff, you mentioned the race. And and so I just wanted to give a, a, a that was my uh if I was gonna pick like a gizmo or a magic item, it would be that Soriandum machine that makes them disappear or go to the phantom zone or whatever wherever it is that they <laughs> that they are now so i thought that was a cool little item gabriel or adam um i think the best thing to steal is the throbbing bridge i thought that was oh, like really that was cool beautiful. 
That yeah, would be yeah. Yeah, yeah, your yeah. PCs would love that as a place where you go and you get like healed up, you know. It's very psychedelic too. It's cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I like the sort of random, unexplained stuff that's just part of the landscape. Nobody knows because of the tragic millennium and all the other stuff that went before that, you know. And we sort of had these illusions to like stuff happening and like we don't really know how far in the future this was, but this, you know, you know, this this sort of half knowledge we have of stuff, you know, Amarek is still out there and you know. <laughs> but things have true to type have reverted back to their sort of also their geographical stereotypes at the same time, right? So that the the Mesopotamia is still recognizably Mesopotamia, even though it's you know <laughs> four thousand years in the future or however far it is in the future, right? Um, so, so these things that you guys are are mentioning, like the Mad God in the cage and the and the throbbing bridge, it, it's these kind of like mind bending visuals for players that I love Morcock for. Yeah, yeah, I think he and and he's able to do it very economically, unlike Robert Jordan or something like that. <laughs> Gabriel, right? So it's like, oh, okay, I get that right away. Boom, move on. Yeah. About uh. Go ahead, Adam. You were about to say something. Oh well, a- another cool thing that they have in there, and they didn't—they didn't explore it hardly at all. Was they had that little device that could unlock any lock. It's like, yeah. how much would you love to have that? <laughs> that was good. Yeah, they hardly used it though. They used it like in the beginning, and then they don't mention it again. <laughs> Possibly. Well, Influence on the sorry, possible influence on the skeleton key from the Elder Scrolls game, which I think does the same thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. that's definitely a cool thing for like a a as you say, like a a a magic item that's not super powerful, but it's one that you realize at the end at the end of the uh, day has provides much more sort of adventuring and role-playing opportunity than like a plus five sword or something in some ways you know yeah definitely yeah um, how about one... you go ahead, sorry Gabe. go ahead Gabriel. thank you um i was actually thinking as to i was wondering if running this in essentially hawk moon in gamma world and really kind of leaning into those sort of beast, having essentially the beast orders of as manimals rather than as sort of humans in beast masks, which wouldn't be entirely true to the book, but that might be an interesting way to take it if I ever did run a sort of Gamma World campaign. I think there would definitely be room for that. Uh, I think also on the converse is the thing that Jeff always likes to talk about, about having not having orcs and goblins, but that these are uh, these war orders are each have their own distinct character. They're still humans, right? But the you know, anytime you have a goblin, replace it unless you have a distinct like, or oh, we're telling a fae story, right? You know, uh, uh, a magical um, Dunsanian story, then let have the opposition be human, right? If it's intelligent humanoid, might as well just be human, right? Uh, but in a gamma world setting, it makes sense also because. We don't know what the animals are. The animals are the humans who've become animal-like, or animals who have become man-like, right? Which is interesting either way. Yeah. And Jeff, you're nodding there. You have some expansions on that thought, or I don't know. I felt like I was going to, and then I wasn't really quite sure what it was going to be. 
<laughs> all good, yeah. all good. I mean, because like right now I'm getting ready to start the Vault of Arn game, and it's very Gamma World in the sense that like, you know, your your PCs are playing either um, traditional humans, they're playing mutants, they're playing um, robots, they're playing um, um, animal people or uh, mushroom folks. Um, so like, yeah, there's there's a, a big variety of of people around, but I think there's this this understanding that they were all probably at one point human except maybe the uh, not even maybe the 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 mushroom folks are not because they're they're spores that have um that have infected humans and now that the humans are dead they're just kind of walking around in the humans so like just puppeteering their corpses so those clearly aren't like an evolution of humans but um that's that's yeah i don't really know where i'm going with that thought but (laughs) well i i think uh you know again it's just that um if we are have to reckon with all these uh our opposition being human, then we then they can be evil, but we can't automatically dehumanize them and make them just automatic cannon fodder, right? Like even Hawkmoon feels bad when the the William Devert kicks his his two flunkies over into the ocean. But William Devert's like, yeah, it made your job easier. <laughs> you know, another sure. perfect Devert moment. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. No, I've talked at length about like why, why, why I like that. I, I like yeah. when things are more, um, um, when when we can make things a little bit more complicated morally for our characters, um, rather than just like, oh, there's a bunch of goblins, we can go genocide them, um, rather than just having that be the automatic answer because you know you've you've heard the word goblin. I I do like the the um, level of complication that comes when they are people, and um, and I, and it's like the I like how I don't know if anybody here has seen the movie The Devil's Rejects, but um, The Devil's Rejects is the sequel to The House of a Thousand Corpses. And in The House of a Thousand Corpses, you've got these people who are monsters who are doing horrific things to people. But in The Devil's Rejects, they're on the run, and they're being chased by 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 the cops. And the cops are also absolute monsters in this movie as well. So in the Devil's Rejects, it's like the good guys are the bad guys, and the bad guys are the good guys. And I don't know. I love that stuff. I love when you're not really sure who you're supposed to be rooting for. Um, and you can also understand why the villains are behaving the way they are. But there's also some really messed up stuff the heroes are apparently doing. That that that's the world. That that's the kind of stuff where I'm just like really excited and happy. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh man, I love that kind of thing. I love like a clear cut villain who can be redeemed mm-hmm. and sympathized with. I just, I just love that. Neil Asher actually is a writer who is like kind of hard sci-fi, but is really, really good at that about having a terrible antagonist and then basing a book or like a trilogy on their perspective. Um, and I do, and I really love those kinds of moral kind of complications in, mm. uh, in gaming. It just yeah, it's just so much more interesting, and compelling. Right. Yeah. It's funny that D and D increasingly actually like increasingly created like you know because originally it was only the three alignments, right? And it didn't actually dictate behavior in a moral sense, right? And then increasingly, once it became nine nine alignments in AD and D, supposedly there's a real good, but then people were doing like e- equally horrible things, but saying no, I'm good, right? It's like um, whereas uh, games are a little bit more open ended. And don't penalize that, you know, don't have these sort of GM sanctions, I think, are, are much more fun. But, Robert, I forget, because I haven't played the um, Chaosium 
uh, Moorcock games. Obviously, there's a law and chaos. Is there a behavioral uh, restrictions or constraints in those versions of the games, or is it more like how how who you align with and can form alliances with in those games? Boy, Hawkman, I don't remember, but I also also think um, seem to remember hearing. A, a, I don't know if it's true a story that the manuscript for that game was lost in the back of a taxi and then had to be rewritten badly, like right away before publication. In the early like first second edition uh, or i think those are actually effectively the same as stormbringer there is kind of um there's i I may be bleeding into like later editions of the rules but there's this notion of um uh allegiance to one side of the balance or the other like like lar chaos and that can wax and wane right because you have um that that can change and then you but you can also build that up like if you're you know an adherent of Arioch or Chardros or some, some like you, if you do certain kinds of vile acts, that will raise that value, which gives you some potential benefit. It's a, uh, it's some kind of an attribute that, that can be used as a mechanism in play certain ways. So, mm-hmm. so that it, it does, it's not quite as, um, I think that other, like the whole BRP world of game systems are all kind of like, you know, incestuously kind of intertwined. And there was this notion of passions in like Pendragon and RuneQuest and and Mithras, which are, I feel like, do that a little bit better in terms of having some kind of half role play, half kind of dice rolling mechanism for behavior that feels a lot more like how people act well or shitty than like an alignment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I remember seeing some of the Pendragon ones, although I've never actually played Pendragon myself, but uh, and there are there in request as well. Um, yeah, I think we're uh, getting close. I need major last thoughts of things that we haven't discussed yet going around the horn. Shall we start with uh, you, Gabriel? Well, all I'd say is that I don't know what Robert thinks, but they... I have the Hawkmoon um, game, and they kind of there were kind of, there were NATO bases, sort of disused NATO bases in the campaign that was in the box set, and that that doesn't strike the right note at all. That's sort of too too recognisable, I think. Mm. I guess that was a lot. In, we, we forget that it was written. Both the game and the stuff was written during the cold, you know, the the Cold War, still at its height. Right? <laughs> yeah, um, Robert, but yeah. Robert, do you have a do you have a response to that? I I don't remember actually. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recollect. <laughs> fair, fair. Yeah. Um, Robert C, do you have any closing thoughts? Uh, well, uh, one of the things I've been thinking about while everybody else was talking was just. Uh, how many ideas are packed into this small book? It's what, 150? Is it even 200? No, it's 200 something pages. But man, I mean, there's lots of stuff we haven't mentioned that you could be stealing. So going back to uh, your last big question, Jeff, I think uh, that's why this book is mentioned in the appendix then, because you could just go through here and raid this for all sorts of details and scenarios for a game of whatever kind whether like uh gamma world D D, whatever um and then uh just as a uh tip of the hat uh 
I was expecting to see Rick Byrne here today, but I didn't see him. But I am wearing his shirt. So oh, I there got you go. myself so a uh, Rick Byrne designed Appendix N Book Club t shirt finally. And I just wanted to say that it looks better in person than it does on the website. So oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. Uh, and thank you. That's true. That's true. Yes. And um, definitely want to send a shout out to Rick Byrne. Um, Hope you're doing well. Um, we're thinking about you. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam, you have a last thought? Oh, not not really. Just uh, yeah. Shout out to Rick Byrne. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, uh, that is what it is. And uh, this was a a good a good book to read. So. Um, for sure. Hi, Rick. I uh, hope you're doing well. Um, the, uh, something you raised, uh, Robert, I really like, and I really admire about Morkaki. He's not a guy who hoards ideas. He doesn't feel like he's never going to have a good idea again. <laughs> he's just like, okay, let me just throw this one off. <laughs> it's like, oh, don't worry. There's more coming where that came from. <laughs> right. And you can see that's like the converse of a lot of it. And, and he knows how to get out of his way, which some of us don't always know how to do. It's like, okay, I'm just doing it. Right. Where it's like, no, if I use this idea, I'll never have a good idea again. I can't, I, I got to get perfect. It's like, nope. All right, on to the next thing. <laughs> and you know, he's what still just had another book come out, right? This year. So and, and it's like the second book in a trilogy. So I figure he thinks he if as long as he keeps writing, he'll live forever. So that's <laughs> that's the way it goes. It reminds me of the the uh, Ryan Murphy style of um of TV uh, the way he approaches television writing. I know that r- when Ryan Murphy is working with the um the writers on American Horror Story. Apparently, one of the big things he says to people is like, don't hold back any of your ideas. I want all of them and we're going to include all of your ideas. (laughs) (laughs) And like when you're watching a season of American Horror Story, you can tell like there's just so there's so many ideas crammed into these things. Some of them work. Some of them don't. But it's just so fun to see so many ideas crammed into one thing. And that's very much the case with these Moorcock stories as well. And yeah, I'm, I'm I'm glad we were able to really kind of, um, I think, also um, ultimately get to a place where we could, um, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But um, but yeah, every chapter in this, as as was being said before, could be its own adventure, and I think that's a big reason why Gary also included this. Sure. I think it's a great example of just like if you're looking for plot hooks. If you're looking for monster ideas, if you're looking for item ideas, this is a great book to mine for that stuff. But really, all of the Moorcock Elric stuff, all of the Moorcock Hawkmoon stuff, they're just brimming with so much fun stuff to steal. Yeah. And that makes sense, given that he was running like a game or, uh, you know, twice a week or, you know, and, and you know, people had more time in those days. <laughs> it's like, OK, I just I got to get ideas, 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 ideas. Just, you know, throw them at me. Um, yeah. Cool. So we'll go ahead and wrap up there. Everyone, thanks for joining us. It's been lovely seeing you all. And Rick Byrne, we're thinking about you. And yeah. 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 Robert P., it's great to meet you. Gabriel. Thanks. Great to meet all you guys. Thank you very much. Adam S., great to see you guys again, as always. Absolutely. uh, Yeah, we'll see you all soon. All right. Take care. Bye, everyone. Cheers. The library is closed.